I was thinking that in the type of church I grew up in, uh, if you came on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, they said you love the church. Uh, but if you came back on Sunday night at 6, then you must love the preacher. Uh, but if you came back on Wednesday night at 7, then that meant you loved Jesus. But I think uh, to show up at 10 o'clock in the morning on a snowy Sunday, that must have meant that you are predestined from the foundation of the world. I mean, way to go. Glad you're here. Glad you're there in Somerset and watching online. Those of you who uh, hope you got your bread and milk and I uh, think we're going to survive. Not sure, but I've heard, I've heard rumors that we will get through it, but we are really, really glad uh, that you've decided to join us online. If you're a guest of ours, uh, we've been in this series and we're talking about kingdoms and empires, and more specifically, we're talking about the kings who sat on the thrones over those kingdoms and empires. And, and the reason that we're talking about this is because if you're a student of history or you, know, you sat in a classroom once upon a time and, and you listened to somebody else try to teach history, the one thing that you know is that the kingdoms and empires of years gone by, ultimately constructed the stories of history. They became history. And what played out in real time, once upon a time, in kingdoms and empires and with the kings who sat on the thrones over those kingdoms and empires, ultimately became the stories of history. And the reason that we're talking about this is because the stories of history ultimately gave birth to the story of Christmas, because the story of Christmas is rooted in and anchored to the stories of history. And this is a big deal for those of us who are following Jesus or, in, in, or investigating Jesus, because uh, we believe that seeing the, the Christmas story within its historical context helps us to see the Christmas story as more trustworthy and more not only remarkable, but just simply more believable because the Christmas story, whether or not you believe it, you have to say it's remarkable. A lot of people say it's so remarkable that it's unbelievable, but when you see the Christmas story within its context of history, this remarkable story begins to become a very believable story. And so that's why we've been talking about this in the context of the fact that, hey, Christmas is a story that is birthed out of the stories of history. Now, before we get into what we're going to talk about today, let me just point out a couple of things that I've been trying to point out over the past couple of weeks that hopefully hasn't been lost on you, or if you're a guest, uh, you can catch up with us. The Christmas story, as great as it is, was never meant to be a story that stood on its own. It was never meant to just be a story that we tell as though it's the only part of the story. And so often churches and so often preachers and so often many of us, when we think of the Christmas story, we tell the Christmas story to our children. Uh, we just tell the Christmas story as it started with an angel visiting a virgin in Nazareth, or we tell it beginning with a manger beginning in Bethlehem. But the story of Christmas, what is so remarkable and what makes it so believable, the story of Christmas was never meant to be an isolated standalone story story. It was always meant to be a story that was seen as part of a greater story, a larger narrative. And so for us, that means that it didn't begin. The Christmas story didn't begin with a virgin in Nazareth or with a manger in Bethlehem. It actually started way before that. So over the past couple of weeks in this series, I've backed up about 500 or so years before Jesus showed up on the planet and have been telling us a little bit of the history that led up to Bethlehem. But even those 500 years before Bethlehem is not all of the story. The story of Christmas isn't just an isolated story. And if you try to see it as an isolated story or tell it as an isolated story, it will never mean as much to you and it will never have the impact that it should have upon you unless you begin to see it as part of a larger narrative, the narrative of all of human history. Because the story of Christmas doesn't begin in Nazareth or Bethlehem and it doesn't even begin just 500 or so years before Jesus shows up on the planet. The story of Christmas 
actually starts 4,000 years before Bethlehem, and the story of Christmas begins in a garden. Now, that's what I want to do today. I want to tell us the entire story of Christmas. I've given us the 500 years before Jesus so that you would understand it and so that when we get there today, I won't have to re-explain it because now you'll be able to put everything together. But the story of Christmas begins 4,000 years before Bethlehem with a tree in Eden. That's where the Christmas story begins with a tree in Eden. Before kings, before empires, before any of that, there was only our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they were in a garden, the Garden of Eden. This is a story that you've been told many, many, many times, and you were told it in Sunday school, and you were told about a talking snake, and you were told about you know all this stuff. It just seemed like, oh my goodness, what kind of thinking person believes that? And you saw it as an isolated story rather than part of a larger narrative, rather than part of a larger story that God was telling that would take thousands of years, literally, to unfold. But the story of Christmas begins with a tree in Eden, and it begins with our first parents. And it begins after God has created the world and God says it's good. God would create everything and after you create, you know, the sky and after you create the sea and the things in the sea and the land and the things on the land, he would say it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he created Adam and said it is real good. And then he said, oh no, it's not good that he be alone. And so he created a wife, he created a companion. And so he created Eve and you know, that whole story that you've heard all of your life. But the real story of Eden is much bigger than just Adam and Eve and an isolated sin and some really bad stuff that came as a result. There is a much larger narrative and there is a much larger theme which is carried throughout the remainder of the scripture. Because from the moment that we are introduced to our first parents in this good and this perfect world, what we see happen is inside the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve decide to rebel against their king. Because as we are introduced to humanity and as we are introduced to the history of humanity and Adam and Eve in a garden in Eden, basically we find that God is the creator and God has created everything good and he's created everything good for our pleasure, for their pleasure, except for one thing. And the one thing that God told them that they couldn't have was the one thing that they wanted to have because Adam and Eve are just like you and Adam and Eve's just like me. We want the very things that we are not supposed to have. We want the things that have been forbidden for us and the things that are off limits to us and we want those things and when we find out they're off limits sometimes we want them even more because there's just there's just something inside of us and it's been that way since the very beginning but what happened in the garden of eden with that tree that god said hey you can have all the other trees matter of fact you can have the whole world but you can't have this tree and adam and eve decided they wanted that tree so they decided that in a world where god was king because as we're introduced to the human narrative in eden god is king of the earth God is king of the earth in the Garden of Eden. They have relationship with God. They have fellowship with God and they walk with God in the cool of the day. God is king and they are part of God's kingdom. And the king has laid down only one law of the kingdom in Eden. And the kingdom, the kingdom law was this. Everything is for your enjoyment except for, right, remember this one tree. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve decided to rebel against their king. They decided to dethrone God as king of the earth and specifically as king over their lives. And they decided to follow their own desire. They decided to follow their own impulsivity at the expense of one another and ultimately at the expense of their relationship with God. So what we see happen in history here in the Garden of Eden is history's first coup d'etat. It is the first overthrowing of a power. It is the first time that a monarch 
has been overthrown. And the creator was overthrown, dethroned, expelled. We don't want you. We don't need you by his creation. And Adam and Eve decided that they would sit upon the throne. They would do what they wanted to do. And they wouldn't be told by anybody what they could and couldn't do because they believed that they were better rulers of their own life more so than God could rule their own life. So we see them dethrone God in the Garden of Eden. And for the rest of the scriptures, for the rest of the scriptures, the narrative is who will be king over the earth? Who will be king on the earth? And who will be king over our individual lives? And that was the narrative that first started with Adam and Eve who dethroned God. And when they pursued their pleasure, when they pursued what they thought was freedom, when they finally caught what they were looking for, it wasn't what they were looking for at all. It, instead of freedom, it was bondage. Instead of you know pleasure, it was pain. And when they decided that they didn't want God to sit upon the throne of their life, they didn't want God as king on earth, they didn't want part of God anymore because they knew something better. They actually wanted to be like God because they believed that they were God and could be a better God, a better version of God. What actually happened in the garden, that when they pursued their own desires, their own pleasures, their own freedom, they actually departed from the kingdom of God and they became part of the kingdom of what the scriptures call the kingdom of darkness. A kingdom that is ruled and reigned by sin and death. A kingdom where sin and death is the law of the land. That in a kingdom where you can't avoid sin and you can't avoid death. Because in the kingdom that they were first introduced to, it was life, it was peace, it was joy, it was righteousness. But in this other kingdom that they have departed into, even though some may say unintentionally, but yet God told them exactly what was going to happen the moment that they decided to reject and rebel against their king. When they decided to do that, everything changed and everything was lost. Everything was lost. Everything that God created that was good was changed and lost forever because of sin and death. Life was replaced by death. Blessing was replaced by curse. Sickness was replaced by death. And peace replaced by conflict. And for the rest of human history, violence, injustice, oppression, everything that you find reprehensible about humanity, everything that you find reprehensible about history finds its origination right there in the Garden of Eden. You never have to listen to the nightly news. You never have to read a newspaper. You never have to flow through you know, your newsfeed on social media and say to yourself, I can't understand why the world is the way that it is. Well, sure you can. And the scriptures offer a very clear explanation of why the world is the way that it is because the narrative of human history that we are introduced to in the book of Genesis is a history that we all know so well and that we have experienced. It is violent, it is not just, it is oppressive, it is prejudicial, it is discriminatory, it is all of those things and they all find their root when man decided they did not want God to be their king. And in the moment that they decided they didn't want God to be their king, they ran away and they hid from God. And then God chased after them. Remember that? And when God chased after them, he didn't chase after them to pay them back, but he chased after them to win them back. And he told them, he says, I know you know what you've done, but here's what I want to do for you. I want to make you a promise that everything that has been made wrong because of sin and death and all of history that's going to go off the tracks now because of this one moment, I want you to know that in the future, I plan to send a hero. I plan to send a king who will make things right again. And in that moment, God promised Christmas. 4,000 years ago, in the Garden of Eden, 
at a tree in Eden, God promised a savior. And he gave them a promise that one day a man would come, a son would be born of a woman, he would be a hero, he would be a savior, he would be a king, and he would overthrow the tyranny of sin and death in this kingdom of darkness. And thus becomes the narrative of the rest of scripture, that God is going to send a king who will one day rule on the earth. And when he rules on the earth, he will take everything that is wrong and he will make it right again. And so that begins the storyline of Christmas. And that's where Christmas goes back to. Now, fast forward 2,000 years in the future. And it's hard for us to even think in these terms, but 2,000 years in the future, we come to a guy by the name of Abraham. And, and Abraham, we've talked about this because God came to Abraham 2,000 years after a tree in Eden. So lots of things have happened in 2,000 years. Man has colonized, violence has spread, oppression, war. All of those things are now an embedded reality in human history. It didn't take long for murder to show its ugly face within the family of Adam and Eve. And so everything has gone off the tracks. It's gone off the tracks in a horrible, horrible way. And God intervenes in history 2,000 years after Eden. And he makes a promise to Abraham. And again, this is the thread of Christmas way before Bethlehem, way before Nazareth. And when a virgin receives, you know, this premonition or this visitation from an angel, this is going to be two, this is 4,000 years, 2,000 years before Bethlehem when Abraham gets this promise. And this is what God says to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. And again, he didn't even have a family that he could be a father of, much less father a great nation. But God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Abraham, once upon a time, about 2,000 years before you, I made a promise. I made a promise to your first parents, Adam and Eve, and I promised that one day I was gonna send a hero, a savior. I was gonna send a king one day who was gonna make right everything that was wrong with the world. Abraham, I want you to know that you're part of that promise. I want you to know you're part of that plan. Abraham, you are gonna father a nation, and that nation is gonna bless all the nations. Abraham, you are one person, but you as one person will bless all the persons on the earth because out of you, Abraham, through you, Abraham, one of your descendants, one of your future sons will be that king, will be that hero, will be that savior. And so with Abraham begins a story of a nation, a nation that we not only read about within the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, but a nation that we read about throughout world history. Matter of fact, we've talked about how the Babylonians wanted control of Palestine, Abraham's descendants' land, and how the Persians wanted Palestine, and how Greek wanted Palestine, how the Romans wanted Palestine, because it was the natural land bridge between North Africa, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. It was also the gateway coming from Europe on the, on the Mediterranean Sea as people headed into the Arabian Desert and on into Asia. This was just a piece of real estate that the world has always wanted its hands on. And, and and in some ways, and to some degree, Palestine, this land that God gave to Abraham and his descendants, would be the focal point of history. And it would be the prize of empires, kingdoms, and kings that would come after him. And so Abraham's story begins, and it turns into the story of a nation. And this nation would become the prize of future empires and kings. And from that point on, in Genesis chapter 12, the narrative of Scripture is very clear. And hopefully, maybe this will help you read the Old Testament Jewish Scriptures in, in a better, more clear way. Because after Abraham, here's what the rest of the Old Testament is about. This is it. It's about Israel. God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. That's what the rest of the Old Testament is about. 
It is the story of Abraham's descendants who will become a nation. And that nation is Israel. And Israel, their specialness, their, their, their offering to the world is this. Their claim to fame is this, that they are God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. God promised Abraham he'll father a nation. That nation is Israel. And out of that nation, one day, God will birth a future king that will one day rule the world and save the world. So for the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, it is the story of Israel. So why is there so much written about Israel? The importance of Israel then in the Old Testament scriptures was so that God could tell this greater story. It is the story of how God chose a group of people, a random group of people. There were nothing special about the Jewish people. God, out of his grace, he made them the apple of his eye because God was gonna use them to be the center point of his plan to redeem the world, to redeem the earth. And out of the Jewish people would one day come the Savior, the hero, the king that had been promised since Eden and had also been promised to Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob, he fathered 12 sons. One of those sons was by the name of Judah. Now, one of those sons was Joseph. You can read all about those incredible narratives in the book of Genesis. But Jacob and his 12 sons, including Judah, they moved with their family of 70 and they moved to Egypt to be with their brother and Jacob's son, Joseph. And it's a great story. It's a fascinating story how they moved down a family. But over the course of a few years, a few generations, they ultimately became captives. They became prisoners of another kingdom. Because that's been the story of humanity. We have been captive to another kingdom from Eden. And now all of a sudden, the descendants of Abraham, they are captured. They are made slaves by the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And at the end of 400 years, you've heard this story. God raises up a leader, Moses. There is an exodus. God's exiled people down in Egypt are brought out of Egypt. They are saved. They are rescued. And thus begins this incredible journey of how this family became a nation and this nation will become a kingdom. Now, Moses, when he leads them out of Egypt, we don't think of Moses as a prophet, but Moses was a prophet. We think of him as a lawgiver, and we think of him as this incredible leader and pastor, but he, he was a prophet. And one day, Moses, he predicted something. He predicted that this promise that God made in Eden at that tree and the promise that God made to Abraham, that that promise would be fulfilled through one of Jacob's 12 sons. Matter of fact, specifically, his son, Judah. Those 12 sons would become heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel are named after the 12 sons of Jacob. And one of those sons was Judah, who was the founder of the tribe of Judah. And Moses said that when this king comes, when this hero, when this savior comes, he will come out of the tribe of Judah. He will be a descendant of Judah, who was a descendant of Jacob, who was a descendant of Isaac, who was a descendant of Abraham. And so all of a sudden, God is pointing his people to the future. When God is going to send a hero, God is going to send a king. And so he says, not only will he come out of this tribe of Judah, but within the tribe of Judah, there is one particular line of family. This line of family that's going, that goes back to this guy by the name of Jesse. Jesse is one of the sons of Judah. And Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Isaac, the sons of Abraham, and so God, he tells the nation of Israel, not only will this king be the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not only will he come out of the tribe of Judah, but we also will be one particular family within the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse. And Jesse, the reason that you should know Jesse is Jesse was the father of perhaps Israel's greatest king, David. David, when he was king, he was about 50 or so years old, God sent a prophet to David and God made 
David a promise that is also part of the Christmas story. And oftentimes, every time this, you know, every, every period of time, this time of year, we read this story because it's a part of the Christmas story because God made a promise to Abraham that was very similar to the promise that he made to Abraham. And here's what Nathan the prophet said to David. He said, when your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood. This is important because, again, the Christmas story is not an isolated story. It's part of a larger story. Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne. Listen to the language. The throne of his kingdom forever. So we have this story developing. The descendants of Abraham, this family, become a nation that's now a kingdom, and now God is making a promise to their second king, King David. And he says, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever. In other words, David, you are going to be the founder of a dynasty of kings. You're going to be the first in a dynasty of kings that are going to be, that's going to flow through you and through your future sons. Your kingdom will endure, David, forever, forever. You can imagine how David must have felt when he heard those words. Your, your throne's going to endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. And from that moment, when Nathan the prophet brought this message to David, the message of the rest of the Old Testament was basically the same. Basically the same with the details changed in and out. And for the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, from this promise to David on, here was the message. The king is coming. The king is coming. What king? The king that's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's coming out of the tribe of Judah that's from the line of Jesse that's out of the household of David. The king is coming. And then, of course, as we've talked about, this brings us to where we've been. So now you see where all of this is flowing and now it's intersecting with each other. David's son Solomon takes over and after Solomon, Rehoboam, then the kingdom splits north and south. God sends prophets to both north and south. And guess what the message was? Get your house in order. The king is coming. The king is coming. Turn back to God. Get in a relationship with God. And he would tell them about how bad things were going to get if they didn't. But then he would always give them hope to say, hey, no matter how bad things get because of your sin, no matter how bad things get because of your rebellion, I want you to know the king is coming. The king is coming. And about 200 years before Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the city, the temple, and the walls around the city, about 200 or so years before that, one of those prophets that showed up was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. The northern kingdom had already been destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. Isaiah shows up and he speaks to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah and he says, you need to get your house in order. It's going to get bad, but, but listen, no matter how bad it gets, the king is coming and there's hope for the future. And he would say things like this. You've heard this before. Isaiah would speak to the nation and say, sooner or later, a child will be born. A son is going to be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness and of his kingdom, there will be no end. There will be no end. And so again, Isaiah, he's a prophet who, who says to the people, the king is coming, the king is coming. And of his kingdom, it will be established and upheld with justice and righteousness. And it will be from that time when he rules forevermore. The king is coming. The king is coming. When he shows up, he will rule in righteousness. He will rule with justice. And there will be no end to that kingdom. He will rule over the earth. 
couple hundred years after Isaiah says that the southern kingdom's destroyed, Nebuchadnezzar, all that, remember? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how unlikely this all seemed when Nebuchadnezzar left and killed thousands, left thousands in the street, took thousands back to Babylon to be captives of war? Can you imagine how far-fetched, how unbelievable, how nonsensical, how laughable all of this seemed? Sure you do, because you've thought that before. You've been driving down the road before. You've been listening to a sermon. You've just been, you know, there's nothing on the radio. You're just thinking and you're thinking about your faith and you're thinking about what you believe and what you claim to believe and You're thinking about what the Bible says and all of a sudden it just dawns on you. Who would believe that? Have you ever had that moment? Please tell me you have. Is it just me? You drive down the road and you're thinking this, that's, that's a tall order. That's difficult because we don't like to think about it too long because if we think about it too long, it's like, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like even thinking that thought. I don't even like going that way. And so we just don't even think about it. So we don't have to go that way. But if you think about it long enough, you tend to go that way because sometimes it just seems a little bit unbelievable. And sometimes it seems a bit unrealistic. It seemed that way, way back when. The promise to Abraham that one day his descendants would bless the world? Come on. The streets and the temples, they're destroyed. The walls are destroyed. The people are dead. The king has been taken captive back. Zedekiah is going to be the last king to sit on the Jewish throne. This is a fairy tale. This is just something our families passed down through the ages to make us feel better about where we came from. And so Jeremiah that we talked about, he stands up in the ruins of a smoky Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar and his armies heading back to Babylon. And Jeremiah says, hey, this is bad, but it's going to get better. He says, there's going to come a day, declares the Lord, where I will raise up for David, Jeremiah said, a king, a branch of David from the line of David who will rule wisely and will do what is just in the land. And people are like listening to, to, to Jerry preaching the street and thinking, I wish I could hold on to faith like that. He's just so impressive. But look around, Jeremiah, look around. Look around. Because if you look around, our, our current set of circumstances look nothing like what God promised. What God promised would happen, what didn't happen. It's not happened. And I think it's not going to. And a lot of people began to walk away from faith and, and who can blame them? Perhaps you would, have, you would have too, I would have too if I'd been there. And if you'd lost your friends and family and countrymen and some of your family had been taken off as slaves and your temple, your beloved temple, your beloved city and the walls around your beloved city were all destroyed and, and you had no explanation. You were having a hard time reconciling your circumstances with God and all these promises about what God has said about one day he's gonna bring peace and he's gonna send a king and he's gonna save his people. The promise of Abraham and David at that moment in history seemed far-fetched. Unlikely. They go to Babylon, they come back after 70 years, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild, they rebuild the city. The two last prophets that show up in the Old Testament is one by the name of Zechariah. There's, there's a book in the Jewish scriptures named after Zechariah. Zechariah shows up and, and after the people have rebuilt the temple, it's an inferior temple. A lot of them are, you know, they weren't very happy with it because Solomon's temple was bigger and better and, and, and shinier. And, and so they weren't very happy with this new temple. But Zechariah shows up and he says, listen to me, people. The day is coming, saith the Lord, when the Lord 
himself, will be king over the earth. Now, they have come back to their land only because a man let them. They are still under the whims of a world emperor, Cyrus the Great, the leader and the king of the Persian Empire. They're the punching bag, first to Nebuchadnezzar and now to Cyrus. And they're only there under the good graces of a king who wanted to let them come back. And here's Zechariah saying, there's one day when the king's gonna be king over the earth, the Lord's gonna be king over the earth. But the last prophet to show up to the nation of Israel at the close of the Old Testament was a guy by the name of Malachi. And here's what Malachi, he put, he put a bow, he put a period, he put an exclamation point on everything that had come before. This promise in Eden, this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse, out of the household of David. He says, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Well, I could imagine that people would have been tempted to chuckle when they heard this, when Malachi said this, because they're still under the tyranny of empires. First the Babylonians, now the Persians, but God says one day, and it's like, come on, let's just be honest. Some of us would have been thinking, it's so easy to talk about one day. It's so easy to cop out and stand behind a superficial, unintelligent faith to say, oh, but it's all gonna work out in the future. And to totally ignore the circumstances in front of your face. Now, not everybody thinks like that, but some in the crowd would have, perhaps you. And they're listening to Malachi say, well, God says one day my name will be great among the nations. The only thing that the nations know about Judah is that <laughs> they're easy. They're easy. They're easy for the picking. From where the sun rises to where it sits, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. He says, everywhere there's worship, one day there will be people who worship me. The Jewish God. God says, one day... All across the world, all over the earth, there's going to come a time and place where people worship me. Well, at this point, the Jewish God, he was a joke. Because in those days when empires came to town, not only did they conquer your people, but they believed they conquered your God. Nebuchadnezzar, he laughed at the idea of the Jewish God. He had walked into the house of the Jewish God and stole his furniture. The Jewish God... Supposedly, you're going to be struck dead in the holies of holies. <laughs> it was a joke. And for many, they said, I can't believe that. I won't believe that. After Cyrus and Persia came Alexander and the Greeks. And after Alexander and the Greeks came Rome and Caesar Augustus, who we'll talk about on Christmas Eve Sunday. And this is how the Old Testament ends. With a lot of people walking away from faith thinking, we've heard this, we've heard this, we've heard this. We've heard that the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. Look around. The king isn't coming. And this is how the Old Testament ends, and this is how the New Testament begins. And the, and the promise to Abraham and the promise made to David, not only does it seem far-fetched, but at this point it seems impossible. It seems impossible. And you know what? How they felt would have been how we would have felt had we been there. And you know what it reminds me? Here's what it reminds me. It reminds me that faith in God's promises often collapses under the weight of life's problems. God promises one thing, but you experience something else. And what happened? Your faith in God's promises collapsed under the weight of life. 
And that's what happened to many people then. Perhaps that's what's happened to many of you. You were raised in church. You were told God will do this and God said this. But your life has not resembled any of that. Matter of fact, everything that God promised about it, it'll be good. It'll work out. You, you feel like none of that has happened yet in your life. That all just seems fairy tale. That just seems like things we say and we put on a Hallmark card to make us and other people feel better. That's how they felt. Because when real life sets in and when it seems to be in conflict with what God has promised, our faith is tested. And sometimes our faith collapses under the weight of life and it's very real problems. The Old Testament ends, the New Testament begins. When the New Testament begins, it's been 500 years since anyone has documented a miracle. When the New Testament begins, it's been 400 years since anyone has heard something from God. God seems silent, God seems absent. The Babylonians gave way to the Persians, which gave way to the Greeks, which gave way to the Romans. And now yet again, God's people are dominated by yet another world empire and their king. Zedekiah was 500 years ago. They've not had their own king from the line of David for 500 years. And when a lot of people had stopped listening, when a lot of people had stopped looking, and when a lot of people could care less any longer, it says that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. 500 years God hasn't done a miracle. 400 years, God hasn't spoken a word, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, right? It's part of a larger story. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel, in this dialogue with Mary, says, Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. Really? Perhaps you would have thought, really? Maybe she was tempted to think, really? Do you know my story? Do you know my history? Do you, do you see our people? Do you know what we're going through? Do you know that we're under the heavy hand, the taxation of Rome and Octavian, Caesar Augustus who sits on his golden throne in Rome? Do you know highly favored? I don't feel highly favored. But the angel said, you will give birth to a son and you're gonna call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God listened to the language will give to him the throne because it's not the birth of just a baby, it's the birth of a king, of his father, David, because this is part of a larger story and an older promise. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary, I can imagine Gabriel saying to Mary, Mary, I know you're a good Jewish girl and I know you've heard your parents talk about this, you've heard your grandparents talk about this. They've talked about this king that was promised hundreds and hundreds of years ago, matter of fact, thousands of years ago, that your people, Mary, the Jewish people, have been talking about a supposed king that would one day come. Mary, the baby inside of you is that king. Mary, the baby inside of you is the fulfillment of God's promise to your forefather Abraham. It is the fulfillment to your forefather, King David. They were told that the king is coming. And Mary, I want you to know. And now all of a sudden, the message changes. The king has come. For 4,000 years, it was the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. Now, it's the king has come. And Jesus 
He would teach his followers about the kingdom. He grew up, became the savior of the world. He taught his followers to pray about the kingdom. He said, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come. Because Jesus would teach us that the kingdom of God is within us. It is spiritual, but there is very much a part of the kingdom of God that is real today, but there is very much a part of the kingdom of God which is yet to be. It is, but not yet. So Jesus said, I want you to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on where? Earth, because it has always been about who will rule the earth from the very moment in the Garden of Eden. Pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus would tell his followers, seek first the kingdom. Order your life around it. Prioritize your life around the kingdom of God. Because within the kingdom of God, I am your king. And here is the law of the kingdom. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because in this kingdom, it's different than that kingdom of darkness. It's different than the kingdom where sin and death rule. In this kingdom, we love one another, we forgive one another, we pray for one another, we carry one another's burdens, we lay down our lives for one another, we serve one another. In this kingdom, this kingdom is so different than the kingdom of this world. And Jesus would teach his followers about the kingdom, and he lived, and then he died, and on the top of his cross where he was crucified, it said, King of the Jews. His birth was announced as the birth of a king, and now he's dying as a king with the name inscribed King of the Jews. And then as the story that we know and we've heard, he's buried, and three days later, he's raised from the dead. He spends the next few weeks with his followers. And on the last day of his life on earth, he takes them out as far as Bethany to a mountain called Olivet. And there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus... He looks at his Jewish followers and he says, I want you to go into all the world, the Gentile world, and I want you to tell them everything that I have taught you. And then he ascended back to his father in heaven. And when he ascended back to his father in heaven, two angels appeared to his followers and said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus which you have seen taken away, will come again in like manner. And all of a sudden, they went into the world with this message of grace, love, forgiveness, that God had sent a savior to die for the world, to save the world from sin and death, with the exclamation of, the king is coming again. The message of 4,000 years of history, the king is coming, the king is coming. The angel announced to Mary in Nazareth in Bethlehem to the shepherds, the king has come. Jesus declared that the king had indeed arrived and then he left, but then all of a sudden, the message began to be again, the king is coming again. And this is why this is important. If I believe that Jesus came the first time, that's Christmas, I have to believe that Jesus is coming the second time. If I track through 4,000 years of the grand narrative of Christmas, which takes me from a tree in Eden all the way to a manger in Bethlehem, and if I believe, if I have the slightest bit of faith that Jesus came the first time, I must also believe that he will come the second time. And though it seems as though God has forgotten that promise at times, and though it seems as though we've heard it all of our lives, that the King is coming again, that Jesus is coming again, Christmas reaffirms that if you believe in Christmas, 
If you believe that he came the first time, you have no choice but to believe that he's coming the second time. And the New Testament tells us that there is coming a day when as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, the heavens will open up. And when the heavens open up, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of God and the voice of the archangel. And the New Testament says in that moment, the angel of the Lord will put one foot on the sea and one foot on the land and declare that time will be no more. And in that moment, it says that the dead in Christ, those who died believing in Jesus, looking forward to him in the Old Testament, looking back to him in the New Testament, will be raised from the dead and they will be changed into their resurrected body. And then those who are alive at that moment when Jesus the King comes again, they will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And with all of that going on, with all the pomp and the circumstance of all that's happening in that moment, it says that Jesus, his feet will set down on the Mount of Olives and he will walk down the mountain across the Kidron Valley. He will ascend the Temple Mount. And when he ascends the Temple Mount, he will sit down on the throne of his father, David, just as the prophets had predicted, just as the angel had announced. And when he does, he will rule in righteousness with justice from that moment on forevermore. His government will rest upon his shoulders. His name is faithful and true. And they said that in that day, down his knee would be the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords, because on that day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And after 4,000 years of history before Bethlehem, and however how much history after Bethlehem, there will be one king left standing. And his name is Jesus. And that is the story of Christmas. Because on that day, King Jesus will rule the earth. You were told wrong that the goal for Jesus coming was so that God could rescue you from earth and take you to heaven. That's so short of how good it really is. God sent Jesus to save us so that one day he could bring heaven to earth. And he will rule and he will abolish sin and death, sickness and disease. Injustice and oppression will cease in his name and violence will stop. They will take their swords and they will beat them into plowshares. And Isaiah the prophet said, in that day they will study war no more. The lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will play with the vipers and not be bit because peace will flood the earth like the oceans of the sea. And as Zachariah said, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And we will rise from the ashes for the very last time. And we will build from the ruins the very last time. We will sit down in the kingdom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we will see loved ones gone before. But we will lay aside our faith because in that kingdom, faith is not needed for our faith will be made sight. And we will see the king who was promised, who came, who promised to come again. John 
the last living follower of Jesus in the New Testament, he got a vision of all of this. And he said, after it was completed, he who sat on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write down these words. They are trustworthy and true. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And John says, amen. Even so, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Can we say that together? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. One more time. Even so, come. You look around. You see what's happening to families. You see what we do to each other. How we hurt and harm each other. We abuse and oppress and discriminate against each other. We get caught up in a system that causes us to exploit one another, betray one another. Children die, adults die at the hands of other adults and at the hands of children, at the hands of disease. How could we not pray? Even so, come King Jesus and rule and reign and take everything that we've made wrong with the world right forevermore. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the stories that came before it. Thank you for the promise that we hold on to still today. We believe that the prophets for thousands of years says the king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. Christmas reminds us that the king indeed came. Jesus left this world after he died for our sins, after he was buried and raised from the dead, but he promised he would come again. And this spiritual kingdom would become a very real physical kingdom. And we would spend eternity with him and with those of faith of all generations. Lord, help us to pray the prayer. Even so, come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We believe you came the first time. We believe you're coming the second time. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name.